This is a music therapy podcast interview with J.D. Hogue. They do. They, they stop talking and they start listening. Um, and the more data you collect, the more stories you can tell. Um, so it, if, if obviously you just collect um, the, the patient outcomes and um, track that progress over time, so like eight out of 10 trials are successful in this, this one session, and then five out of 10 were successful in this next, uh, that, that's all you can speak to. Um, but if you also collect what intervention you used, whether it was telehealth or in-person, whether um, it was a co-treatment with another therapist, if, uh, if you collect all of that data, um, then you can tell those stories as well. You're listening to the Music Therapy Chronicles, a podcast about music therapy from a variety of perspectives. Our ambition is to inspire and connect listeners through meaningful conversations, just like a music therapy conference you can listen to anywhere. My name is Trisha Kayati. I'm your weekly host and a board-certified music therapist from the New England region. If you're enjoying the show, please subscribe so you never miss an episode and consider leaving us a rating and review. We really appreciate them. You can find more podcast episodes, links to our pod courses, the self-care community, links to all of our social media, and get on our monthly newsletter, all at musictherapychronicles.com. Thank you so much for choosing to listen to this show today, and you can always reach me by sending an email to hello at musictherapychronicles.com. Welcome back to the Music Therapy Chronicles. I hope you're having a fabulous day or morning or evening or wherever, whenever you are listening to this, wherever you're listening to this. Uh, thank you for being here and, and spending your time over here on the Chronicles with me. Today's conversation with JD is really, really interesting. Uh, JD is both a music therapist and a quantitative psychologist. And if you're like me and the title uh, quantitative psychologist is like kind of got an idea of what those words mean, but not entirely sure how they correlate or overlap or what that looks like, we get into that today. And JD shares so many useful tips about uh, data, data collection, data interpretation, its implications for our practice as clinicians, as well as um, as a collective using that data and how he is creating resources specifically right now through his YouTube channel to make this information accessible both so that there are not like financial gateways and also accessible in a way where you can learn this information from him, but also you can give it to other people in your life who are not super familiar with statistics or being a clinician in general, just like a lay person can take this information that he's interpreting and synthesizing. And I think that, like we said on the show, like I just mentioned, there's lots of gateways to data, its collection, its use, its implications um, to research in general. And so it's amazing that he is 
creating this bridge that we are so in need of. So I hope you enjoy this conversation. I hope that you learn a lot from it. I definitely did. Um, Real quick before we get into it, you probably, if you listen to the show avidly, you probably noticed that there was no episode last week. And if you follow Music Therapy Chronicles on Instagram, you know why. So you can skip over uh, a couple seconds if you already saw those posts. And if you're not following on Instagram, please do. That's where I um, update things most frequently. But basically, last week, I was preparing to record an episode and get things ready. And I have had an influx of people wanting to be on the show, which I am really, really appreciative. Um, The call is always out there. Feel free to reach out to me. Hello at musictherapychronicles.com. But I had such an influx of people wanting to be on the show and I was scheduling interviews and coordinating things and trying to get that all ready. And by the time I sat down to do a show for last week, had lots of ideas and creative things kind of floating around in my head but I couldn't get my thoughts down in a coherent way and I was running out of time and I was feeling the pressure to put out an episode and to get things ready and to do something that was valuable that was worth your time to listen to and finally I was like you know I gotta take a little dose of my own medicine um Back at the beginning of the year, that episode about our capacity is changing. And my capacity was, I was at capacity for the day. I had other stuff I needed to get done. I needed to shift and use my time for something else. And so I said, hey, there's not going to be an episode this week. Whatever I do won't be done to the best of my ability. And I am not willing to put something out that's just like, half-ass for lack of a better phrase. I even thought about putting like a really quick episode out about how there's no episode. Um, But again, I just posted it on Instagram instead. And so this is my way of trying to be transparent and model. My capacity is changing. This is what I have time for and this is what I don't. And I want you guys to know that, that like, hey, this is a really conscious decision that there's no episode this week. Um, Sometimes I would put out like a re-release or find like a creative way to get something out for you all. But Like I said, a lot of my energy last week went into scheduling these amazing interviews that you're going to get to listen to today and the weeks coming up. And so I felt that holding off for a week, like that, that was more important is to get these interviews in so that you all can get, get good quality information. Um, I hope that makes sense. And I appreciate your patience and your understanding. And I hope that you are also finding ways in your daily life to honor your changing or perhaps not changing needs to make the hard calls and tough decisions and to show other people that um, this is my these are my boundaries and that it's okay to to shift and to you know put something down when you need to so yeah that's a little uh PSA I guess for anyone who needed to hear that But that being said, I have had these awesome conversations now and I'm excited to share them with you. So let's get into this chat with JD. All right, JD, welcome to the Music Therapy Chronicles. It's amazing to be here. Thank you for having me on. Of course. Thanks for making the time. How are you doing today? 
I'm doing well. I'm doing well. It's it's exciting to be here. Thank you. I I like um it makes me feel good when people are excited to come talk to me. <laughs> I guess my ego wants to say that. <laughs> so to start off, can you tell the listeners about yourself and it can be music therapy related or not? Yes, I am a both a statistician and a music therapist. So I got two master's degrees, one in quantitative psychology, which is where the stats come from. But the second is a master's in music and music therapy. So I'm a board certified music therapist as well as a statistician. Um, and it's sort of my passion to talk about how stats can help the clinical practice and mm. one, make us better clinicians but also inform others about what we do so that we can grow and expand. Yeah. What an interesting combination. I don't know if I've ever heard like that specific combination of, um, of degrees before. I, I've only heard of one other person who has a similar combination. Yeah. Oh, cool. Well, maybe some people will reach out to you who, um, after hearing this, who have similar interests and you guys can connect. Cause that'd be, that'd be cool. It's nice to be supported by people with similar um, correlating interests. Uh, definitely. And um, well, my email is H-O-G-U-E-M as in Mary, T as in Todd. Uh, so that's hoguemt at gmail.com. So if anybody wants to reach out to me, I'm, I'm happy to hear from anyone. Yeah. Yeah. I will um, leave anything linked that you mentioned today, including your contact information so people can get a hold of you. Awesome. Thank cool. you. So can you tell us uh, how you found music therapy and like what inspired you to, to go down that journey? <laughs> you know, that's a question I get within the music therapy world often. Um, I, I never have an answer that satisfies anybody who, who asks the question. Uh, huh. and, and, well, everybody's looking for that big aha moment. And personally, I just don't have that because I was, I was interested in it in high school. And growing up, I, I often used music personally to help me through some, just some tr- trouble life issues. And it, I like in high school, I even did um, papers on it and Mm. I was just learning what I could and I wanted to study it in undergrad, but I just never got a chance because the the university I went to didn't have that as an option. Um, So I thought, well, undergrad is done. So I I guess I'm just done with the whole music therapy scene. Um, And then after working in a a psych ward for a couple of years and realizing, um, well, I needed to go to grad school. Um, but two, I was still wanting to use music with the patients. Like I Mm. still had that urge. Um, so I actually went to grad school for quant psych and the university also had a music therapy program. So I, I snuck in the back door. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, and they offered, um, once I finished my quant psych degree, they they asked me to come on and finish the music therapy degree because by then I had a semester into it already. Yeah. So I ended up with the the double masters. Oh, so cool! I so, go ahead. Oh, so it just kind of it just kind of came full circle, but there's not just this big aha moment of oh, this is the best thing ever. It was just kind of I'm going along, <laughs> I'm going along for the ride. Yeah. I literally have the same experience. I never had an aha moment. I was along for the ride, didn't know where I was going. Here I am. Um, but that's amazing <laughs> that like you you went to, through this whole like psych journey and then it brought you back to music therapy. Like you were in the right place at the right time. Um, and I'm really intrigued about how those things intersect and to get into the meat of our conversation today. So 
take that wherever, whatever's on top of mind for you. Um, well, I've always said there's this over, a huge overlap between psychologists or counselors and music therapists. Um, and, and music therapy for me tends to be the musical application of the psychological principles. Mm. Um, and when I was, uh, I was faculty and staff at um, Missouri Southern State University for a couple of years. And I taught both an intro to music therapy course and an intro to psych course. Ooh. And the concepts overlapped, like to the point that I could teach either course at any time with the same information. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so, we're talking things like motivational principles, um, it, just basic theories. Um, I, I, I could go on. So just to give a quick example, a psychologist might take the steps of how to tie your shoelace uh, for per, uh, someone who's autistic and um, make them into a storybook with pictures. Hmm we will do the same thing with the steps. It could be the exact same steps, but we would put it to music so that they can sing the lyrics as they're doing it. So, and they don't have to reference the book, totally. but it's the, it's the exact same intervention just in a musical focus. Yeah. I'm sure that your psych, your non-music majors, I'll say taking your course really benefited from you having your feet in both worlds. Cause you were able to give them so many more tools, so many more music method tools um, that another teacher teaching them intro to psych would not have gotten. So yeah, I'm sure they got a lot out of that. (laughs) I I like to think so. Um, But I I had, I didn't just have psychology students. I had teachers and occupational therapists. Um, A lot of people just kind of came, the the course filled up quickly (laughs) when I, when I taught it. Yeah. But that's great because more people going into the helping professions should have that foundation, if they not should. more. Yeah. They should, because, because we are an inter- interdisciplinary field, mm-hmm. um, we need to be able to work with so many other different disciplines and have them understand what we do and how we can help them. Totally. Yes. Yes. So quantitative psychology is like a new term to me. Will you like, what, it, what, what does that mean? <laughs> <laughs> That's a fair question. Based, it, it boils down to the, the math of psychology. Yeah. So the, like the, st- the statistics, for whatever reason, that word is incredibly hard for me to say. It's a hard word. <laughs> and I say it all day long and I mess it up every time. <laughs> um, it boils down to the, the math and the research statistics of psychology. So every time you read a research article and you see the, um, the inferential statistics um, or you see like Denmark is the happiest country, <laughs> um, they're, using, they're using the math and the, the quant side of things to, to tell that story. Yeah. So this is really intriguing to me as a quantitative psychologist, would you like primarily be working with people as a clinician or would you be like gathering data and interpreting it? Like what is, it's yeah, the, what like? yeah. It's the yeah. gathering data and interpreting it. Yeah. So cool. 
Okay. So how, how do you do that as a music therapist? Like, do you work with other music therapists to help them interpret their data? Like, how are you using those two things? Yeah. Um, so right now I'm trying to find a clinical practice. Um, like I'm trying to build my own and get a few clients on the side. Um, but it, it, funding and all of that, it's, it's kind of hard in a small town. Um, yeah. but uh, a few things are happening, but, um, Oh, yeah, the, the music therapy and the, the quant side of things really do overlap because, um, and this was my training as a music therapist, was to take hard data in the session with the patient. Yeah. And then I can take that with that individual patient well, and one, show the progress with that one individual patient with the numbers, but also roll that up with all of the other patients and figure out the story at the group level so that I I can see, oh, at the group level, maybe I'm not so great at this, or maybe I'm really doing well with this intervention Mm. um, and figure out how, um, how to inform my own clinical practice. Yeah. Oh, go ahead. You look like you're going to say more. Yeah. Yeah. Um, So I've, I've worked with, um, a few other companies, uh, ones like Opportunities for Positive Growth, and they they collected um, assessment data every year, and um, this was the MTAP. And so the MTAP gives you hard numbers that you can show show every year. So I took that with all of their their patients. They had like three hundred, I think, within the time frame, um, and. I was able to show that across, I think it was eight domains that we used, there was a significant increase in all eight domains um, at the group level for their patients. Um, And I was also able to show that um, there was a difference between older patients and younger patients. The younger patients grew more, but the older patients didn't grow as much. They still grew, just not as much. Yeah. What a unique skill set and like an awesome offering that you can give to people or companies or private practices or whatever to to be able to take all of that data and put it into such a clear and condensed form that then can inform their practice, just like you said, because most of what I have heard about people using stats and data collection and music therapy is like, is the client making progress? Is XYZ happening? Um, Sometimes to bring back and inform our own practice, but that's not necessarily what I've heard a lot of. So I love that, like, that's your approach is, you know, we're doing what we're doing. And then instead of only interpreting the client's progress or growth, like how, what do I need to do differently, better? What are my strengths already? Um, and then doing that as a collective at the group mm-hmm. level on top of that, that's really, really cool. Well, thank you. Yeah. Um, well, what I find with every data set that I see is every one of them has a story that they need to tell. Mm. Um, just It's just like people. Every data set is, is unique and quirky and you have to, you have to sit with it to figure out what it is and why it exists and what it, what it needs to bring out. Um, And it, it, I often, I often see a lot of 
uh, fear of numbers within mm-hmm. the therapy field. Um, but it's it's really not any different than working with the patient. It, you have to be able to um, a- accept what it is, uh, to to open that space and have a container for for whatever it needs to bring out to the world, and and be receptive and accepting of that, regardless of of whatever it has to say. Yeah. Oh, what a great psychology lens to put on that. <laughs> yeah. We all need those reminders sometimes mm-hmm. of, of mm-hmm. acceptance. Yeah. <laughs> and the the data at the group level can really show how we work as music therapists. So we can take that to other clinicians and say, oh, well, this is what I can do. And this is how effective we can be one just by myself, but two, if we work together and we take data, mm. are those outcomes faster, better, um, and, and really justify our existence. I hate that phrase, but I, <laughs> <laughs> I get it. Yeah. <laughs> um, numbers but don't lie. Numbers. Well, numbers don't lie, but people lie with numbers. Ooh, yes. Yes. <laughs> um, so that's why I like the, the approach of you have to sit with the data to get the story out of it. Hmm. Um, yeah. Because when you, when you go with your lens and you, you try, you, you have perceptions, you have conceptions, um, you have your own distortions that you just kind of need to get out of the way. But if you don't get them out of the way, then you distort the story and you try to prove what you already want to prove. And that's not what the numbers are for. Yeah. When you interact or are working with people, with clinicians who do that, they kind of distort things a little bit. How do you handle that? Or what do you have advice you give them or? Or do you just throw out the data? Like it's no good. (laughs) <laughs> um, no, I don't like throwing out data because you might not like it, but mm. um, but just because you don't like it doesn't mean it's not true. Yeah. Um, but so so when working with other other therapists, and I'm I'm showing like their productivity data to them, um, it, you always have to remember that you can't fight an emotion with logic Hmm. and the, the data, they want to be logical. They want to be like uh, um, very strict and, and come out with that because, well, that's just when looking at numbers, that's like the side of the brain we, we put ourselves on. Um, Although I don't ascribe to the, the hemispheres largely. um, Hmm. it, It, but still, it puts us in that mindset of I've got to be logical and, and very distinct and categorical. Um, but but like with any other type of information, um, the numbers will bring up emotions with us. Um, so I, I like to, to give space for those emotions. Um, let, let that person tell his or her story um, so that I can... I can work with that emotion and then come back to say, um, you're doing well with this. You're doing, you know, that we need to work on something with this. Um, but it's, it's I, I, I try not to use the numbers as something that's punitive rather than mm-hmm. an opportunity for growth. I'm just thinking about because you 
studied quantitative psychology and not just statistics, it must be really amazing to work with you because when there is like me say, say I'm a person you're working with and I am having these emotions, you are not just like a statistician (laughs) working with (laughs) me. And like, you're like, no, like this is it. And these are the numbers. Like you're able to take that psychology lens and work with me as a human to, you know, Mm -hmm. bring the data and, and yeah, connect these emotions and the numbers. And that must be so rewarding for you, but also really beneficial for the people you work with that you are able to give them that. I have heard horror stories of other, (laughs) of other statisticians just taking the numbers and saying, I don't, I don't need you to talk about this. I can do it strictly from the numbers. And and they're taking they're taking it out to the community and and other places. And I'm like, uh, even as a music therapist working with music therapists, I I I can't do that. Like it it stresses me out just to think about um, not having the more qualitative side of yeah. like, um, of the the personal experiences behind it because I know what I don't know. I know, I know the data can only tell so much of the story, but the, the human experience of it really fleshes out the pieces that are missing. And um, listening to the people who collect the data, who are working on the ground um, to, to get it every day, they have a different experience. Mm. Yeah. How do you include that? Or do you include that when you do like a report or when you put everything together? How do that, you that's those that's the hard part. You can't get everything. Yeah. Um, <laughs> you just can't get everything. And there's, you can make some notes. Um, like uh, um, one patient had this experience with my, which might bring the numbers down or increase the numbers. Um, or, or one therapist might, you know, be gone for two weeks and that might Mm -hmm. bring the numbers down. Um, or you might just have to adjust for like full-time experience, uh, full-time equivalency of like, um, say you have a therapist who's part-time work. You might, sometimes you have to adjust for, to, to project if they were Mm full-time. Um, so there's, there are ways to to work with that. You just always have to notate it so people can understand how to interpret it. Um, But often what I see is the data bring up more questions than you have answers to. And sometimes you just don't have answers to them. Yes. But that's kind of the fun of it, right? It's um, problem solving and like- It's, it's, it's yeah, it's problem solving. It's insight. It's, um, and it's not, not logical problem solving. Sometimes you get data that you don't know why you're getting it. So you have to be creative about what you want to do with that and how you want to move Mm -hmm. forward. Yeah. Yeah. So for someone listening who, I'm trying to think of the way to say this, who maybe doesn't always see the value in collecting data you know they see the value in their work in other ways what would you say to them like why is it so important that we get hard data objectively that's a fantastic question as a as a world as a collective we're moving into uh, a data-informed practice yeah um 
and other people are going to find it very hard to listen to you if you don't have that data to back up what you're saying. Um, So informatics is going to be way more important in the future than it is right now. And what I find with, with data is people become receptive and they listen when you put something in front of them. So my favorite thing to do as a statistician is to, to take the graph and put it in some, put it in front of someone because, because they shut up. (laughs) They do. They They, they shut up. um, They start being receptive and they start listening. And when they do that, then you get a chance to tell your story, your side of things, how you work as a clinician um, how effective you are as a clinician and why they should work with you. Yeah. Ooh, what a great, I mean, obviously dad is a good advocacy tool, but like, what a great way to frame that. Um, mm-hmm. <laughs> <they> shut up. <laughs> because it's, it's effective. <laughs> it, well, it, it, it's true. It's, uh, it was a bit crass, but yes, uh, <laughs> they, they do. They, they stop talking and they start listening. Um, and the more data you collect, the more stories you can tell. Um, mm-hmm. So it, if, if obviously you just collect um, the, the patient outcomes and um, track that progress over time, so like eight out of 10 trials are successful in this, this one session, and then five out of 10 were successful in this next, uh, that, that's all you can speak to. Um, but if you also collect what intervention you used, whether it was telehealth or in-person, whether mm. um, it was a co-treatment with another therapist, if, uh, if you collect all of that data, um, then you can tell those stories as well. So yeah. you can say, these are the interventions I use and how they're connected to the, uh, to, to the outcomes that I treat. And you can map those two together and show that one intervention doesn't just address one outcome. One intervention can address multiple outcomes at the same time. You must have been following my train of thought, and I will try to make this question make sense. So there's there's two theories. There's probably more, but I'm going to name two. Where one is right, you have the goal, you you have your data that you're trying to get to, and so you collect things along that path right? It's kind of goal focused. And then there's the other train of thought that says, we don't necessarily know where this person is going to go or what their outcomes are going to be. So we're just going to collect everything we can and then backtrack to see where the progress was. So where do you camp in one of those fields? What are your thoughts on both of them? Um, I, well, I move back and forth through, through those fields, but the biggest question you have to ask for when you, for what data to collect is why you need the data because you 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 can't collect everything it would get so overwhelming Uh, (laughs) (laughs) it would um so so you have to be mindful of what you can collect because you can't spend three sessions with the patient just collecting intake forms that's Mm. not going to work you need to get to the music otherwise you're going to lose them um and in fact, I, I spoke to a friend who was who was trying to get dance movement therapy and the the DMT spent three sessions just collecting intake data. And she kept saying, I need a full profile. And he was like, I want to dance. Yeah. <laughs> let, yeah. Let me let me dance. 
Um, um, I want to I want to qualify that saying that was one specific experience with one patient with one therapist. Like I, I work with dance movement therapists and they're great. They get to dancing and and I love working with them. Um, but that that particular story translates to music therapy because our patients just want to sing or they mm-hmm. want to play. Um, or they 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 come in so stressed out that they like they're frozen and they can't even do anything. So we um so that's where using the the music as interventions as assessments to collect baseline data mm-hmm. um, works amazingly well. But as you're doing those assessments and interventions, I just find that um, I have to keep data either in the back of my head or at the end of the intervention, just mark some tally marks down somewhere quickly um, so that I I can put that into my data collection sheet. You Um, read my mind again. Go ahead, (laughs) sorry, I don't mean to interrupt you. Um, Well, to to go back to your first question, um, it's it's a both and. Yeah. It it really is, it's a both and. Um, The caveat to that is, uh, you have to be mindful of what to collect um, because it, it, well, if you don't have it, then you, it's hard to tell that, that story with it. Um, but you have to be able to make the data collection um, easy and sustainable. Easy and sustainable. Okay. Mm-hmm. That was my next question is um, how do you collect data in a session or like what advice do you give people? Cause you know, we're, we're playing the guitar, we're tapping the tambourine on our foot, we're pressing a shaker, we're helping with uh, motor movements if that's necessary. We're corralling the group to try and right. keep them in the room. Right. Yeah. How do you it, keep data? It, it's, it's, it's a lot. Um, and it, it, unfortunately it becomes just one more cognitive task that we have to do. Lovely. Um, it, it, um, but it's a, it's a necessary cognitive task and it, it becomes more helpful than it is hurtful. Mm. Um, so, you, but you can do things to make it easier. Like um, there are finger counters that you can put on your finger and then you can just tap. Yeah. Um, what I, how I was trained was to just keep the numbers in my head as I'm going along. Um, obviously that's easier with an individual person than it is with a group. Um, but I, I will be mindful of what trials I'm doing, um, how, if that was a successful trial or not, and I'll just say that, okay, that's two out of three, that's two out of four. Um, and I just keep that repeating in my head while I'm also singing a song, <laughs> um, yeah. and, and observing the patient and trying to think, Oh, next steps, uh, where does the patient need to move forward? Um, but the, you got to get those numbers out of your head as quickly as possible. Mm-hmm. Uh, because you want those numbers to be as accurate as possible. And if you wait till the next day, if you wait till the next week, uh, you're, you're going to forget what those specific numbers are. Yeah. Especially so, if you're working with a lot of people. It, especially if you're working with a lot of people. Um, so um, if it, it's best if you can just at, right after the intervention, take two seconds just to quickly jot those numbers down. Or while the patient is playing piano, for example, uh, and you're watching for the number of successful trials, um, just ta- make tally marks while mm. they are playing and you're, you're, they're not focusing on you. <laughs> they're focusing on the music. 
Um, So you can get those numbers down to uh, ideally in a, in a data collection sheet um, or, and that might be an Excel file that, that you've built yourself. Um, Or that just might be a, um, like a one page tally mark that you, that you created. Um, I do recommend keeping it in Excel because it's so much easier to aggregate and build up mm. to, to, to bring all the data together and then show it at the group level. Yeah. That's really tangible advice. Thank you. That was, that's very helpful. <laughs> do you have tips for interpreting the data? So someone's like able to do this, they do it in Excel, they have all these numbers, but they're like, okay, now what? <laughs> Um, if you're working in Excel, pivot charts are amazing. Um, and you want to be able to make your data set show um, specific things like what patient you're working with, um, mm. what session number that, that was, um, what outcomes you're working with, um, whether it was a telehealth versus an in-person session. So this is where like each, each session might be a row. Mm-hmm. Um, and then the pivot charts can um, help you bring all of that together quickly and show um, over time how the patients are doing. Or if you're just um, wanting to get a, a quick number of patients who work on a motor goal, um, then you can use pivot charts to, do, to answer that. So I, I do highly recommend learning how to do pivot charts. Um, But if you're wanting to do research or talk to people who understand stats a bit more, then um, this is where inferential stats can come in. And if you want more insight into what's happening, um, like things like correlations can help show patterns. And this is where this is where a trained statistician can can really help to one bring those patterns out, but show um, through the inferential statistics and and averages and standard deviations and standard errors um, where things are moving and how how that can inform your practice. So, for example, um, one company I worked with, I I, I noticed through the inferential statistics that they were transitioning their clients from one therapist to another quite often. Um, it was like three therapists in five years or, or something like that. Um, and this was all, all in-house. And that sparked a conversation about one, why are we transitioning our clients from one therapist to another? Um, but what can we do to help with that? Because when they transitioned, the two therapists couldn't talk to each other at the same time because they couldn't bill with an overlapping time. Mm. <laughs> Probably very common. Very, very common. Um, so I so I helped them make a, a just a, a cheat sheet about things like the patient that they couldn't put in their treatment plan. Mm. Um, so like what the client worked well with, what, what specific um, actions looked like with that client, um, like who was on the treatment team, what are the dynamics, things like they couldn't tell to anyone, but they needed to transfer to the other therapist. Um, and 
the therapist writing it could bill for that time, then the therapist getting it, the new therapist could bill for reading it. Yeah. Oh, how helpful, especially because you probably were really helpful in determining what information commonly needs to be transferred. You know, like, hey, these are the things I see, or this is what I'm seeing in the data that is not getting communicated. Um, So cool. Right. And like I said before, the data can only go so far. So it can uh, tell you what direction we need to go in. It can open up the conversations that we need to have that that might be uncomfortable. Um, but, But we need to have them. And then we can come together as humans to solve the problem. Yeah. Lovely. It must be so fun to work with you. I'm just thinking of like all the value that you must add to any company that you're able to work with um, and how much like things must improve with your help. I, I, I like to think so. Um, sometimes it, because of the fear of numbers that I, I see often, um, people and, and then um, people can also get defensive with the numbers as well. Yeah. Um, so, so I, I see a lot of, um, you're telling me this, but I don't get it, but I don't want to tell you that I don't get it. Yeah. <laughs> I, I see that a lot. Um, but I, I, I do my best to, to, um, explain it in terms that you can understand. Um, and, and as a music therapist, that, and I'm working with another creative art therapist, you can use your language and I can understand that and then translate it through the sets. Yeah. Oh, another great benefit to you having this dual foot mm-hmm. in both worlds. Yes. As opposed to someone who just speaks numbers. <laughs> if someone was just speaking numbers to me, I would be very overwhelmed. <laughs> and like you said, I'd be uncomfortable to ask a question to be like, I'm sorry, what does that mean? Right. <laughs> Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. And especially with the like the hard inferential stats, like that's where you get like the um, F1 comma 96 equals 2.1 P value equals 0.05. Yeah, yeah. Um, people t- <laughs> My eyes are glazing over. <laughs> I, oh, exactly. Yeah, it, 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 it happens quite often. Um, so that, that's why I, I try to come from the, the story approach. Yeah. Oh, how accessible. That's awesome. So, so those inferential statistics, yes, when you're talking about them, just like what you, what happened with you, you're like the people eyes glaze over and they don't understand it. And it's frustrating. Um, But those are what we use in research. Mm. And, and it, it's incredibly important for research to, to tell other researchers um, what's happening so that they can understand it as well. So, so they're in a sense, they're a necessary evil. Um, But what I do with my YouTube channel is I read through that research, understand the inferential statistics and help aggregate all of those stories within that topic to tell other people what's effective with music therapy where maybe we're not as great and um what we can do with music one to help you as a patient but one how you can use music to help yourself yeah yeah 
So you're taking and, all of that and making it accessible, not only for clinicians, but also for a awesome. lay person who for finds other people, YouTube. for other people as well. And I, I do make sure that I, I don't talk about the hard numbers <laughs> when, <laughs> when I'm, uh, when I'm on my YouTube channel. Um, but, but I do often uh, offer a lot of tips um, for a wide variety of topics. Like I have a um, video on music therapy and cancer. I have a video on how to make anger constructive versus destructive. Um, and um, I even helped write a, a book on research in music therapy and the veteran and the military connected populations. Um, and I had the editor come on and, and we talked about that book and how it can be a resource for our patients. So it's a wide variety, variety of topics, but it's all evidence-based. It's all research-based which um, I find as a field, we're not, we're not as good as getting that evidence out. And I, I'm trying to correct that. I want to get the evidence out. I pull, I, um, I take everything from the peer reviewed literature and I put the references right on the screen and then it would put links to those references in the description. So everyone has access to it. That's awesome. It's a lot of work. Thank you for doing that. Thank you. Yeah, it is quite a lot of work. I tend to get one video out a month if I'm lucky. Yeah. Um, it's because I have to I have to collect the resources, then I have to read through them, then synthesize them, then put them into a coherent message, um, then record the video and edit the video and, and then do all the back end YouTube stuff. And it, it on top of working a full time job and trying to spend time with family. And um, so I'm not getting as much pushed out as I would like, but uh, um, I, I do get stuff out as quickly as I can. Yeah, that's so cool. What an amazing resource too um, for people, people like me who appreciate the numbers, but don't always understand them. <laughs> but also, like you said, to, for us as a profession to we're publishing research, right? Like it's happening um, and it might be accessible. Sometimes there are gateways, uh, but then to put that in a way that we can advocate with it and not just say, hey, we are an evidence-based profession. Here's what the research says, but you can't look at the research because we're not sharing it. <laughs> like, okay, and, it's not shady at all. <laughs> well, that it, that's not just us. Um, I don't want to put that all on just music therapists because it, that happens with every field. Yeah. Um, and it's, it's at the, um, it's not at the clinician level. It's at the research journal level. Yeah. Um, they, they gatekeep the, the research and you often have to pay just to access it. There's a paywall. Um, and, uh, and some of the journals are just so lofty that it's hard to even understand to begin with. Um, so yeah. it's not accessible if you don't have money, it's not accessible if you don't have the, the language to understand them. Um, and the research I've seen on, on, clinicians and research is we just don't have a lot of time to even look at them. Yes. So th there's a lot of barriers with, with all of that. Um, but it, it really is important to, um, to explain what we do, but also insurance companies use the research to decide if they'll even consider funding it. Mm. So yeah, I, yeah. I've heard clinicians um, getting research and just mailing it to the insurance companies and saying, hey, this is what we do. Because again, if you don't, if um, we're moving into that informatics 
um, science-based world more and more, and people need that hard evidence to, to make their own decisions. Totally. And I love that you just taking like a quick step back to all these gateways and barriers, you are creating a solution to this problem. You are building the bridge for people to be able to access, understand, interpret, and apply all the information that's in our research and in the data. And you're doing it at such a large scale. You know, Mm -hmm. you're not just like, Hey, here's one article I read and blah, blah, blah. You're, you're putting like a collective, um, what's the word I want to say? You're putting it together collectively in a way that people can understand and use. And I, I really appreciate your energy and effort going into that um, well, because we need it. Thank you. Yeah, I appreciate your appreciation. Um, <laughs> and what I see with what I see with other YouTube channels is they t- um, they're trying to get stuff out as quickly as possible uh, because well that's what the algorithm loves. They want yes. fast numbers. and new and, and the, well yeah they want fast and new and more and more numbers and um, and a video every day that it's something yeah. new every day. And, um, and I wish I had time for that. I just don't right now, but um, I, I'd rather spend more, more effort on quality than mm-hmm. quantity. This podcast is sponsored by the Music Therapy Podcast Collective also known as MTPC, where you can find a variety of CMTE opportunities in the form of pod courses. All of MTPC's pod courses are built on a listen, learn, apply model, where you start by listening to some assigned podcast episodes, then move into learning with the assistance of a workbook filled with resources for you to start your self-study towards whatever topics are most interesting, inspiring, and applicable to your practice. And then we finish with the apply section, which includes an office hour and a worksheet to determine how you are going to apply your learning to your personal life or professional practice. You can find all the Music Therapy Chronicles pod courses on our website, musictherapychronicles.com, and you can find the entire catalog of pod courses at MTPC's website, mtpodcastcollective.com. Make sure you also get on the MTPC newsletter for 10% off your first pod course purchase. Is, is there anything else you want to dig into before we do the rapid fire? No, no, I think, I, I think I've said most of everything. Good. All right. So the questions are short. Your answers don't have to be. They're all about you. The first one is coffee or tea. I'm definitely a tea drinker. Yeah. Early bird or night owl. I'm a night owl. I, Thanks for getting up this morning. <laughs> <laughs> I can't focus in the morning to save my life. So night owl, I'm, I'm great. Something you'd tell your younger self. It's tough, but you're doing everything you can. So keep going. Your music therapy elevator speech. 
I wish I had a good one. The, the quickest one I found is we use music to help people improve their lives. And we do it through the intentional use of music. Yes, that one speaks to my heart. <laughs> Your favorite self-care practice. Meditation, but I've also been taking some nature walks recently. Mm. Probably easier to do now that you're not in DC. <laughs> a, a, a lot easier. Um, but I also find I, I sing to myself while I'm like meditating or doing the, the um, guided meditation or walking in the nature. So mm -hmm. I, I bring in the music to it. Um, and, and what I found on my YouTube channel is that listening to just listening to a song is the same benefits as just a regular meditation. Ah, interesting. Very interesting. Something that's currently adding value to your life. My YouTube channel, um, one to see like the views and the subscribers going, that's, that's, um, I'm feeling, I feel appreciation for every time I get like a new subscriber or a new view. So um, that helps me as, out as well. But even just listening to the stories about people um, seeing their problem in a different way after my video yeah. or um, taking it to their patients and saying, hey, this is a helpful resource. Like, listen to this. Yeah. Um, all of those fill me with, with so much joy to hear. So that, that's definitely adding value to my life. That's one of the great things about YouTube is you can get that feedback. You know, there's a comment yeah. section and stuff. Yeah. <laughs> Unless the comments are nasty, which happens. Um, <laughs> but that's every channel. The people, people are trolls and you just have to ignore them. That's right. That's why we meditate and walk right. and center ourselves. <laughs> exactly. And, and practice that self-care. Yes. What is your favorite intervention or song to use in a session? Good question. I have this drumming exercise where I ask them to um, make a phrase, like a, a, a phrase that they tell themselves, that their self-talk, but they start with negative self-talk. Like I hate my hair or I hate my, like something that they tell themselves regularly. And we translate that into the rhythm to play on the drum. And I, um, Sometimes I'll ask the entire group just to play their negative self-talk um, chaotically, just on their own, mm. and um, might come back and say, "How you know? How did drumming make you feel with that negative self-talk?" Mm. Um, and then I might sometimes I organize it to where uh, we go round robin. Like I I could play my negative self-talk, and then the group would relay that negative self-talk back to me. Yeah. Uh, and then we can have a good discussion about um, one, how did it make you feel just to repeat that over and over again? And two, how did it feel for other people to relay that back to you? Mm. Um, and then after that short discussion, we, we flip that into positive self-talk and then go through the drumming exercise again. And we can have it talk about um, how did the positive self-talk make you feel? Um, were you, did you feel heard when people were relaying it back to you? And 
what would you rather do? Do you want to spend your time in the negative self-talk or do you want to spend your time in the positive self-talk? Yeah. And, and relate that to, I've even heard people um, talk about like their physiology change. They were more stressed out in the negative self-talk and um, more relaxed in the negative self in the positive self-talk. So it, so putting it all together helps them um, understand how they're talking to themselves and how others are talking to them affects them. How powerful. I'm thinking about, um, and this idea is very abstract for a lot of the people I work with, but how when someone does or says something that's really triggering or activating for you, it's usually because you hold that belief within yourself and are not willing to look at it, right? right. Um, so for many of the people I work with, like that's very very abstract, but to put that in a container of this drumming experience, mm -hmm. and then they get familiar with what that feels like. And then perhaps in their daily life, be able to be like, I have felt this feeling before because I was experiencing that negative self-talk. Oh, you know, so-and-so just said to me this thing that, you know, they can put that together, um, having the experience within that environment in, in like a safe way. How cool. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you. Love that. All right. The last question is, how can the listeners find you and connect with you? Um, well, like I said in the beginning of the interview, my email is hoagmt at gmail.com. Um, my, my phone number is 870-351-1616. I, I prefer text if that's possible. Um, that's so many scammers right now. Um, I, like, I, I answer my phone and it's a scammer. Um, sometimes the library called and it was, it sounded like a scammer. So I hung up and then they called back oh. and said, oh, you hung up on me. I'm like, oh, I'm sorry. I thought it was a scammer. Um, Scam library. <laughs> so, um, so please uh, text or email. That's, that's the best ways to reach me right now. Um, you can check out my, my YouTube channel and, and leave comments there. Um, I also have a website. It's a, it's a bit outdated, um, but it's examples of um, some of the research and the stats that I've done for, for, for psychology, for music, for, for psychology and music, for music therapy. Um, so you can go and check out some of the work that I've done. That is JD Hoag, that's J-D-H-O-G-U-E dot Weebly, W-E-E-B-L-Y.com. I will have all of that linked so people people can easily access you and therefore easily access all of the information you're putting out there and putting together. Uh, and again, I really appreciate everything you're doing because so often I've had conversations with people about these gateways and these barriers and, um, you know, not everyone has the time and energy and skill set to create the solution and you are using your energy and skill set to do that. So thank you so much. And, and thank you for having me on today. It's, it's been such a joy just to talk about, about how the numbers can help inform our practice. I, um, but, uh, I'm very passionate about this. So it's, it's, it's great to have this experience. Yeah. Thank you for making the time to talk with me. And um, yeah, you can, I can tell when you speak how, how much it means to you. So yeah, I, I look forward to seeing and hearing about more people like you who help professions like ours move forward by integrating these two skill sets and um, yeah, working with people individually, working with companies, mm -hmm. all that. I, 
it gives me hope that something will change over time. We'll be able to and, progress in that way. And um, I'm hoping like a big part of this was the accessibility part. So the more we can make everything accessible, the 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 stronger we're going to grow together. Yeah. Well said. I hope you enjoyed this conversation and you learned a lot. I know that I'm excited to dive into JD's resources and to be able to understand, interpret, and utilize the research and the data more in my practice, in my growth as a clinician. I think that, like I've said, it's so imperative that these avenues that these resources are popping up we need more of them um whether that's a youtube channel a podcast an instagram feed a website like whatever it is it's awesome that more and more people are able to put in the time and energy to making things more accessible that being said jd did send me the thought he had and lost and i'm gonna share it with you um when we were talking about accessibility, the next point he wanted to make was he wants to make statistics and the creative arts therapies accessible so that he can help people empower themselves to be their best, which I think is so eloquently put, especially because I know sometimes creating resources like his can be so challenging because sometimes it can feel, I know, like a like a thankless job or you're really passionate about something like he is about putting this information out there. Um, and sometimes it can be really challenging to find the motivation to keep going. So yeah, send him some love. Also, you know, any, anywhere you're getting or finding resources that you are really benefiting from or getting a lot out of, maybe take a second to just let those people know because being on the receiving end of that can be so impactful. So that being said, thank you so much for supporting this show, for being here today. Please make sure you subscribe so you never miss an episode. Again, follow us on social media in case I have another, um, I want to say hiccup like last week, but it wasn't a hiccup in case there's um, stuff you need to be updated on. You can also jump on our newsletter. Um, I share... I share updates about the show and upcoming things and whatever's on my heart and mind. And by subscribing to the newsletter, um, you get some exclusive self-care resources and a self-care episode. So dive into those. Until then, have a wonderful week and I will see you in the next one.